Dude, I'm so excited to have you. In fact, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast that I put on cologne. You can't even smell it. I lit a candle. You can't no, even I see can. it. You can My smell it. My smell vision. What is it? It's it's a little musky. It's got some leather, but there's a hint of citrus. <laughs> you say leather? Yeah, it's leathery. You yeah, cowboyish, but there's like some playfulness. There's some citrus in there. Maybe some I, lavender. I like cologne with with leather because I think it's just prepping my body for the inevitable future of leathery skin. <laughs> so. There you go. And honestly, that's been like my my whole reasoning for being in Poland. It's like, well, I'm, I'm putting another year on my life. You know, another year more I can be in the sun before inevitably I just look like a California raisin. So I would I would disagree. You not being in the sun is what's aging you. Really? Why do you say that? Sun's extremely important. The sun is super dangerous for us, all animals, and us would be died out a long time ago. It's the way humans binge sun and like My go question, to Cabo for a week after not being not seeing the sun for all of winter. Well, I have two questions. Then the first is like, what about people who were born and lived kin kin of generations in like really cold places like Sweden or something? Um, yeah, they still spend a lot of time outside, you know, pre-industrial era, still got a lot of sunlight in their eyes, some on their skin. They're very pale, so they could absorb the sunlight more. But like, I, I'm no authority on sun or health. It's just very loose principles that I live by. Yeah, you're a car man. <laughs> what do you know about exactly. the sun? <laughs> right. No, because the, then the other, the other thing I think about is like, <clears throat> for example, when I get back, home to california i'm gonna want to just be in the sun for like hours you know like beach volleyball tournament style just like out in the sun for eight hours but like that can't be good for my skin you know like i feel like in some way i have to like slowly acclimate and be on top of like all right exactly and your your body to some degree gives you the natural signals of like that's enough you know yeah but after like lately later after the fact like that evening it'll just be aching and burning and be like you spent way too much time in the sun today Mm. so the feedback mechanism is slow whereas like you you put too much salt in your water you're gonna vomit you're gonna know that almost immediately we're speaking of which uh you asked me the other day based on that like heart rate monitor thing I've been trying. Yeah. Uh, if I've been a little lightheaded and I haven't, even today I was doing some, some squat stuff for my legs. And like, after doing a session on both legs, I got up and got like kind of lightheaded. Does that just mean mm-hmm. I need more salt? Like, what is that a sign of? Um, for me, this is what I, I know of my body and maybe trends with other tall people is um, my blood pressure is very low and I have a similarly long lanky body. There's a lot of distance for the blood to move. So, um, if I don't drink enough water or I don't have enough, um, salt or electrolytes in my body, I get very lightheaded. The blood is not pressurized enough. I think throughout my whole system, that's how I think about it. Um, and that dehydration changes a lot of how much your heart even has to work. So if you have less blood volume, uh, let me, I guess, 
explain my understanding of this. I might be wrong with some small details. So uh, when you pee, you're peeing out filtered blood. So you're losing blood every time. Like you're losing blood all the time. And that's why you. Whoa, there's blood in your pee? Water. No, no, no. Well, you, that's a problem if it is, but it's filtered blood. It, it's, it filters all the blood out. And so then it's just like water, Go, urine, gotcha, acid, okay. that kind okay. of stuff. So if you have less blood in this like sack of skin. That and that's really how I describe my body as a sack of skin. So I appreciate using that term. <laughs> just a giant scrotum. <laughs> uh, just a giant all sack right. of skin. Dude. Yeah. Um, your heart has to pump more and harder to get that blood throughout your body. So in that test that you do for your heart rate variability, um, when you, if you watch your heartbeat, when you're lying down, it's probably in the fifties, forties to sixties, I would guess for you. And then if you're dehydrated, you stand up, it's probably staying above a hundred for that whole time because it has to work harder to get the blood throughout your body. If you have more blood volume or an adequate amount of blood volume and electrolytes, that heart rate um, and heart rate variability, the heart rate should drop down to like probably 70 to 90 and your variability should be better because you have less beats per minute. Um, and so your heart rate variability is better. And that would in itself would allow you to be in more of a recovery state, allow you to be, think better, perform better, like just drinking good water and enough water is hugely important. And if like, if you don't mind like talking about, I'd love to like, just describe to people kind of what you've got me doing or what we're playing with right now, experimenting with, are you cool to talk about that? Right. Or is that like some secret yeah. agent stuff? <clears throat> no, it's some stuff that I'm still learning about though. I'm not, yeah. not the full expert on. Um, so it's a, um, very in-depth heart rate variability measurement tool. And it is this very simple test, which I love. It's simple. It's short and highly accurate where there's an aggregate aggregate of data of, what heart changes happen from people lying down to standing up and what changes when you do normal breathing versus deep breathing. And so how your heartbeat changes from supine lying down to standing is a pretty good measurement for, um, recovery fitness. Um, and in one of these tests, like CO2 tolerance a little bit as there's a breath hold component in the one that I have at the gym. <clears throat> and so based on the, how the app reads the variability of your heart, which is the differences between beats. Um, so your heart should not be a metronome. That would be a very stressed out heart. Either you're being active or you're have a deep need for recovery. Um, so the app interprets his data from lying down to standing and deep breathing, and then gives a score based on um, how the app understands the research to his current fitness, how inflamed he is, and what his nervous system is doing, how uh, parasympathetic he is, or how much of a rest and digest state he is, or how fight or flight he is, how alert he is. And athletes who... Oh, keep going, sorry. Athletes who are overtrained um, score like their fitness score is very low. Their variability is usually very low um, uh, and we're highly different than, I'll just say very low. Um, and their parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems are also in the negative so that they 
um, are much more uh, on alert, downregulated, and in a desperate need for recovery. And so what this test is doing for, for Taylor is giving us more information to understand how his nervous system responds to exercise and what give us a really accurate um, reading on how much he may be overtraining or undertraining. And I mean, you brought up an interesting point. I mean, especially talking about the parasymp- parasympathetic nervous system and more or less the ability to rest is how I view some of that. Like how quickly can you... <clears throat> Yes. Get into a, a state of rest, like your body's physio physiology is like, it's time to chill out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, I just wanted to, I just think it's worth talking about because so much of what people are looking for are solutions for doing more for different exercises, for better ways to increase this or that, and like get stronger. And, and then when people talk about recovery, it's just, well, then just roll out and try to get good sleep. And can you talk a little bit about, I don't know. I don't even know if this is a yeah, real question. Right. Talk about the parasympathetic no, on a You're touching on an important point. So from my perspective, the general understanding of what recovery is, is a business model, unfortunately. What people think recovery is is stuff that sells <laughs> products. There's things labeled as like Theragun. Oh, that's therapeutic to pulverize my muscles with a pneumatic hammer with a little rubber tip attached to it. Mm, so much recovery. Um, not true. And the uh, Normatec boots, maybe they're, I mean, the best thing about Normatec boots is it gets athletes to sit still. I know that there's some athletes who like can't stop doing stuff. And then they finally put on the Normatec boots and they're finally relaxed. Um, although if they're on their phone or engaging in, in more anxious behavior or their emotions are up and down they might be lying there moving their fluids around with compression and whatever else these fancy boots are doing um they still not might might not be in an actually true parasympathetic state so this device for us tells us whether or not you can be in or your the health of your parasympathetic system there's plenty of athletes that i i know or i suspect and some that i am testing that um, try to relax, but the way their heart is beating shows that they're not able to generate or get into a parasympathetic system. So it doesn't matter how much they foam roll sauna, ice bath, sauna, ice bath might be unique, but they, they need to learn how to actually down regulate into a parasympathetic system for them to recover from other stressors. And if they can't do that, then them training more, doing more stuff is arguably just going to dig them into a hole. And then they're going to encounter some overtraining problems, which is a pretty serious issue. I so mean, recovery things being like getting extremely good sleep, well-timed sleep, um, being able to regulate your breathing and understand, uh, how to control your nervous system through breath, uh, understanding like what is a true parasympathetic state versus just sitting still. Wait, I, I got to slow you down because you like go over so many topics that I think are worth expanding on. The first thing I thought about is like rolling out massage guns. Yeah. Let's talk about it. You know? Sure. What, 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 what is your, what is feels good? It feels good. It feels like, ah, I'm doing something. Um, but I don't 
believe it does what a lot of people think it does. Um, why, why do we need these chronic tools? Like why do people feel like they can't leave the house or travel to any games without their Theragun and foam roller? Like why is these the standard routines? Like part of it, I think is people like to be touched. People like the immediate feedback of, ah, my muscles now feel different. It's also a psychological psychosocial factor of like, well, this is what everybody else is doing. You know, then it feels might feel good, but what would the, the question, average she asked, why, why do I need to pulverize my quads before and after every practice? Why are my quads constantly giving me this sensation that I then label as tightness? Cause I don't understand what is actually happening. And what's and the common answer? At, usually they have, uh, in my opinion, they're moving in a way that's creating a negative sensation in their quads. Maybe they, um, have some sort of for lack of a better term, movement imbalance, or that they, the way they move, um, makes them overuse one quad. So I used to work with a downhill skier um, who would squat and bend her legs very asymmetrically. She didn't really load the right side of her leg. And so that means she veered left a lot, both in the weight room and going downhill on the mountain where she's facing immense g-forces then she asks me the question of like well why does my left quad always feel tight why do i why does my left quad always feel i need to roll it out or it feels fatigued and the answer isn't something like oh because there's something wrong with your left leg it's because the way she moves overloads her left leg chronically and so it's it's overworking it's it's um, overworking and it probably doesn't have the capacity to do that she's not a paralympic athlete um, she is a, she has all four limbs. She's working great. Um, she just doesn't load the right side more. Once we got her loading the right side, um, equally in the weight room and on her skis, like left leg felt a lot better. Didn't need to roll out. Um, also I, guess- I would say that the Theraguns, like they're probably causing some damage. I don't see any evidence of it in the research yet, but based on, my intuition, how I understand it, my guess would be that they're actually causing more damage to the muscle uh, that you then have to work to repair. So it's not a recovery device. It's actually a device that's creating the potential for more need of repair. The The thing to divorce is like, well, it feels different, therefore it's better, or it's underneath the guise that it's a good thing for, for me to help me. I don't know. They're rationalized for all sorts of things, but I'm very against it. Yeah, and I guess not my them or foam roll. They all feel great. Yeah, and I, I was I was thinking just from the perspective almost of as a player as like, well, I've always been told it was let's say to like promote blood flow and and uh, to break up scar tissue or in the really dumbed down version is like to get rid of knots, right? Like especially the classic one is you're on a foam roller to roll out your IT bands. And you find a spot and then you sit on it and you kind of roll on it and then it gets some relief. Like then what's, what's happening there? Sure. Maybe. I don't know. I haven't seen any evidence that knots exist or that they disappear after foam rolling. The question again becomes like, um, why do you chronically need to address the same knot? Why does the knot always show up? Always. And it's because the muscles contracting in a way that's maybe pissing it off or not contracting in a way because there's some sort of movement imbalance. The skeleton is moving in a way that um, is not conducive towards a sensation of a good, good musculature. 
um, maybe it is in, insightful that, yeah, there's a trigger point somewhere, but the answer to me isn't like, well, let's just roll it out. The answer is, well, why is it there in the first place? Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, buddy, this, this is why I love you. You know what I mean? You, you just, you bring a perspective that it's not, it's not just that you're, let's say, counterculture going against the norm. It's just that like, I don't know, I guess now I'm just diving into my personal feelings about you and why I've always felt like we connected well and why I love you. Why I love keeping this relationship up is you, you question, you have me unintentionally questioning and, and attempting to learn like, why am I just doing this? Why is like Norma tech, like everyone should be doing it or like the recovery devices is such a great one because especially now you see, you know, 16, 17 year old kids at tournaments rolling out. Um, and I guess and wearing every brace that they can find. Uh, but before, before we get into that, why don't we, I would love for, I mean, we've just kind of dove straight in because we know each other really well. Um, arguably a lot of the listeners have no idea who I am. So why don't we go into how we know each other and like how we got to know each other in the last few years since what, 2015? Mm. Well, I mean, we've really known each other since you were in high school. That's true. You were my, hello everyone. This is Austin Einhorn, uh, ex-volleyball player from UC Santa Cruz. Also was a coach at Beta Bay, which is I think where I first met you. No, right? I met you because we were scrimmaging against you and Brian Cook and uh, Kyle. Um, I don't remember uh, your oppo. I think he went to Pepperdine. Um, Kyle Garens. Yeah. 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 He's a tank. Uh, we were yeah scrimmaging against you guys. You guys were really good and fun to play against you. Yeah, we had it. We That's had it. First map. Yeah, and I'll be completely honest. I don't remember that. I for some reason in my memory, you were like a coach for one of the twos teams. No, Mm-mm. Oh. I coached at Mountain View Volleyball Club for a little bit, oh. um, but we met at practice. Yeah, and let's be honest, we didn't hit it off. You know. I, I don't think we became yeah, you friends. You don't even now. remember me. No, I don't even remember you. You left a pretty poor impression on me. So we probably slaughtered you guys, honestly. <clears throat> we had a uh, beg, beg, beg to disagree, but whatever. Yeah, I mean, clearly my memory doesn't serve me at all. So whatever you say is probably the closest to the truth. But let's be honest, we had a pretty baller team, dude. Yeah. Brad Howard, Jeffrey Stapleton, Chris Fisher, Brian Cook, Kyle Garens all went to Division One schools. Uh, Chad Gordon. We just had such a fun team, dude. Uh, those were mm-hmm. those were good days. Those are real good days. But um, then we we move on and and uh 2015 is when our story really starts. Yeah. 2015. Uh well, I, here's here's my side of the story is um I had known of you a little bit, knew you were connected in the NorCal volleyball world and to some degree that world's kind of small, you know, so everyone who moves up kind of knows each other to some degree. And uh, really where I think I first got interested in what you were doing was you were working with Brian Cook, actually, my first year in 2015. Um, Brian Cook and I played at Padova together in Italy, my first year, my first professional season. And uh, I just remember seeing some of the things he was doing in the weight room and just was very curious. And, and now looking back, gosh, you've evolved so much, um, but like a lot of DNS style concepts um, he was just doing a handful of things I thought were so interesting. And I was like, dude, what are you doing? Because I, I had just learned from a guy who was, uh, this guy in Hawaii, Daniel Marchong, who was doing, had a completely different methodology for training. 
uh, opposed to the traditional, the conventional style of training and really fell in love with it. And that kind of opened the door for me to be like, wow, there's so many other ways to train. And I ended up getting to some degree and to some degree it's my problem now, like addicted to, um, the novelty of like learning and trying something different and new and like really had so much fun exploring movement and, uh, saw what you were doing with Brian and for his knee and for some things he was going through. And I believe that's when I contacted you and was just like, Hey, mm-hmm. let's be friends. Like, I want to be, I want to yeah. be a part of what you're doing. You came up for a few days. And then what were some of the main changes you felt in your body after that first, first program that we, we created together? Hmm. Well, I will say right off the bat, doing something new for me personally, always just gets me excited. You know, like it's doing something different and and to some degree you get to explore your body and understand your body in in different ways. And that right off the bat was like, you know, you had brought together some concepts that I wasn't really thinking about prior, you know, one of them being like breathing and to some degree, like nasal breathing and, um, box breathing was like a really basic strategy for even like post game. I mean, at that, at that time I was, I was introduced from you, the concept of Eldoa, which maybe you Mm -hmm. don't are not a big fan of anymore, but at the time it was like something new and exciting. And, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, we don't need to maybe get into that, but if you're, if you want to talk on it, no, I mean, the question I have for you first, I must apologize that we are, we're competing with. It's all right, baby. Let them shingles Um, ring. They're finishing up uh, a roofing job at my apartment complex. And right now they just decided to, um, come above my ceiling. So I'm ap- apologize for that. Um, we're going to go through it anyways. We're going to endure. Uh, and, and there's no the need to I apologize come- for something that's out of your control, Austin. Okay. I'm trying to be understanding. Being a nice guy. I wouldn't want to listen to roofers either. If I was listening to podcasts, I don't want to listen to them now or the either. last two weeks. We're accepting it. Um, so you distinctly uh, take more autonomy in your training than almost any other athlete that I know. And I really love and respect and appreciate your ability to um, seek out your, or follow your curiosity. And I want to know what exploring so much novelty as a practice, as a like permanent trait of you, what does that do for your body, mind, career? Well, that's a great question. Um, wow, I thought this was going to be a podcast where I interview you, but it sounds like it's just uh, you've turned the table. Oh, no, no, no. I, I have got some <laughs> questions for you here, too. Sick, dude. Uh, can you repeat the question? Yeah. So this is a really valuable trait that I try to instill in a lot of my athletes. I find too many athletes, especially the young ones, are just yes, yes men, yes women, where mm. it's um, the, the perceived good behavior of a lot of athletes is just to say yes, coach. And that the coach always knows what's best for the athletes. And that is not true because there's so many athletes who are hurt under the guidance of coaches. Like it's not lost on me that almost every athlete gets hurt under the watch of a coach. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I try to encourage within all the athletes that I work with is a collaboration with their training that they um, take autonomy. They take ownership of their training. They ask questions. They ask to do certain things. They ask to do things differently, and that they seek the they see the benefits when I purposely inject more novelty or more uncertainty into their training. 
you have taken that, that, I mean, that's just been kind of who you are for a really long time. And I want to know, here's the question. What does such exploratory behavior do for your body, mind, and career? Well, I'll definitely, the first thing I can say is that it's a chance for me to engage in my curiosities physically. Um, and like I had mentioned, when I was in college, I had a unique experience with, with someone that really changed my life. And, and I went from just being like kind of an average athlete to like, he kind of opened the door, Daniel opened the door for what could be possible, things I didn't think were possible. And he was similar to you in the sense that it's almost like I had, like most kids, I have so many questions. Oh, do this or squeeze this or, do, you know, like I, I wanted to know exactly like, what do I need to do? Cause I was, I had the mindset of like, push, push. I want to do more. I want to do more. <clears throat> and to some degree, he was good at like saying few words, you know, and almost answering my questions with questions, which is something I think you do really well is also because it, it then pushes me to think about the things I'm doing. Um, and that journey for me <laughs> has never stopped. You know, the, the idea of, of continuing to seek out and understand better, not only my own body and from like a motor control standpoint. Now, I think it's done a lot and translated a lot into my athletic career, being able to adapt. Okay, so what does that mean? What give me three visible, like tangible outcomes that have happened, but what do you mean by that? <clears throat> well, and it's hard. This is bringing me to a point now where it's like, something I actually wanted to ask you about, which is to some degree, like, is there such thing as too much variation? Because, Absolutely. because the part I, I, I struggle with now is feeling like, you know, I'm, I'm continuing to seek what I believe is my truth. And, and I enjoy the process of learning new things. And to some degree, it's like, if you don't do something consistent enough, you don't get any sort of ad adaptation. And the question that I really have, I've just deflected everything you said, and now I'm asking you a question. And that question is, you know, like where, where is, is there such thing as too much variation? What does that look like? <clears throat> yeah. I mean, with performance, we are trying to get certain adaptations. This is why um, we're trying to get certain adaptations. Those adaptations come at a cost of three finite resources, which is time, energy, and um how that energy is, is sustained or used within the body. Like you have a finite amount of tissue damage that you can sustain during a workout to waste that on modalities that don't work or to go to spread, to spend your money in too many different ways. Um, when you have a certain adaptation in mind is just not useful. So this is why it's so important to understand what things do when you are training, practicing, um, it's such to use a Theragun. What is that really doing for you? Is that expending more energy? It's certainly expending financial resources. Um, and so understanding how to use variability is essential. It's, it's, again, it's another tool and you can do too much variation just as you can have too much monotony. Give me an example. Like what, what is too much variation? Like, cause, because something I think about, for example, is I take a little bit of some conventional philosophies, some things I've learned from you, potentially even some DNS concepts, some stuff mm -hmm. I learned from Daniel, some more like reciprocal mm -hmm. inhibition, some different ideologies, let's say for training. Mm -hmm. And I kind mm -hmm. of 
over the last few years have just like mixed and matched and been trying to figure out like maybe I do something for six weeks or a couple months and kind of mix, I get over it and do something else. And like, I'll, I'll admit my faults in the sense that I think I have a hard time being like, yep, this is the, this is the training philosophy I'm going for. And like, we're just going to do this. Now this is separate mm-hmm. from, in my opinion, from injury and something mm-hmm. I'm focusing on now, you know, having plantar fasciitis for over a year, had my right foot rupture and still now dealing with it. Uh, it feels like it's been an absolute nightmare and being like, okay, now I need to be more tactical with how we're trying to, to solve this problem. And you actually put it really well to me. Um, a few weeks ago, just being like, this needs to be your focus. You know, it can't just be like, Oh, I want to work on this and work on this and work on this. It's like the, the priority now has shifted to making sure we're really tactical and consistent with how we're loading as a means to get that adaptation to hopefully, Mm -hmm. you know, increase the fascia and the tendon strength and ability really. So, um, let's use, um, a more like gymnastic idea, um, training where there's a lot of, um, so say someone does, uh, you know, one set of squats and then does like one set of, uh, pistols and then, um, does some plyos and they're just like bouncing around from thing to thing to thing while each one is going to barely push the needle in a certain direction where, plyos are going to push more um, like muscular stiffness where a heavy squat um, that's like 80% one rep max or up might uh, veer towards more tendon density. And then the pistol or like, um, yeah, something of the like uh, might be challenging for, for someone, but uh, if they would say I'm the example, it's not really going to drive my adaptation anywhere it's just going to be my boy's pistol energy it's just going to be energy expenditure and so without a clear direction in mind like if i'm just working on general fitness caloric expenditure and orange theory class kind of thing like sure cool that works well i'm just expending calories Mm. and um that is unfortunately a lot of the mindset of training is like I'm sweating, I'm moving, I'm burning calories. Therefore I'm getting better mm. with your example or any sort of, um, tendon example. It, that's just not going to move the needle where we want it to go. What we know with the research is that there's pretty much two, two main ways to improve tendon, uh, density. And that's through heavy, slow movement or lots of isometrics, uh, long holds and intense holds. And so the variation is wrong or right, depending a lot on the goal. Someone who's uh, just say a, a coach who's not trying to um, jump higher, hit harder, be healthier, but just like working on their fitness. Sure. Do all the variation in the world. It's just going to expend calories. Um, and maybe that results in fat being lost, just generic health. Let's, cool, let's right? just, I want to dial it in like right away. Like let's talk about vault, let's specifically volleyball, but athletes like. Yeah. So most athletes, um, the priority for almost every athlete needs to be, how do they stay healthy? And I see a lot at the youth level where they somewhat feel invincible and don't realize, uh, that they're probably marching towards an injury. A lot of injuries have very predictable precursors. Unfortunately, a lot of athletes that I see are a little bit more leathered, 
a little more tenured, um, have been injured and understand what it is for their sport and career to be taken from them. And then they understand the importance of prevention. So, um, yes, sir. He raised his hand for those who are listening. I mean, absolutely. No, no, no. It wasn't a question. You were speaking. I was like, yeah, I'm that guy. And I just, just to talk on that really quickly, uh, not to interrupt you any longer, but I do think it is one, it, it makes me laugh how much I get DMS about people who want to increase their vertical and hit harder. And, mm-hmm. and it's, it just makes me laugh because it's like, man, I, I, I was that guy and still am. There's still, yeah. my ego still gets in there and it's like, yeah, I want to jump higher. Yeah. I want to hit harder. Yeah. You know, and, and so, you don't, you, to your point, you don't realize at all how important <laughs> at, at this, let's put it this way at this, at the highest level, it's really about who can stay healthiest the longest. Yeah. So here's, here's two examples of, um, some female athletes that I know, one that I train, um, one that I just follow on Instagram. Um, she is a two-time world champion and I, she shows her training videos. She's working really hard, but when I see her do pull-ups, she is like 20% shifted off center. She veers so much towards her right. And she's just doing a ton of pull-ups in her training. Like, great. Good for her. Why is she avoiding her left side so much? Like that to me is a big red flag and say, unfortunately down the road, she has an injury to her left shoulder. There's an obvious precursor to it. It's like, she doesn't, she avoids putting force through that arm, or maybe she has an overuse injury on her right side. Cause she is, um, whenever she needs to pull and I've seen her, I'm trying to be very ambiguous here. Uh, whenever I see her need to pull within her sport, she pulls primarily with her right arm and not her left. So here, here's a clear a uh, predictor that uh, there's a risk of injury happening to probably a shoulder. Mm. Um, here's another example of somebody uh, who was very monotonous in her training, but there was an obvious lack of benefit. Um, her, she's a professional athlete. Her trainer with her team was having her do very traditional rotator cuff exercises um, for years. She spent, I think, three years with this. And when you mean traditional rotator cuff exercise, I'm going to go into that. Basically, just turning your arm in and out, like your 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 T's, your Y's, your Mm -hmm. V's. You're pulling on bands. You're doing three sets of ten, and you're moving your arm like you're doing the robot dance. And just like, okay, I'm just going to isolate this (laughs) joint and move it in and out. And you look at her shoulder, and her rotator cuff is actually atrophied, where there is a lack of muscle there. So here's a really big question. Why did, I mean, here's two really big questions. Why is her shoulder atrophied when she is supposedly training her rotator cuff and her shoulder three times a week for three years? The bigger question, the whole one that I hope to solve with my book and my course is why didn't the coach notice her shoulder was atrophied? Mm. Then she had an injury to that shoulder. And... It's pretty obvious reason why, like she's not, if there was some, uh, there was a mechanical issue in how she was loading her shoulder that resulted in less muscle there, less force going through, um, her shoulder and we fixed it and she has muscle there now. And well, guess what? She's healthy and playing at a really high level and her shoulder feels great. And it was honestly a very simple fix. Um, 
just requires just an iota of observation to think critically, to look critically, to observe what is actually happening with the body, with the musculoskeletal system. Um, I have two questions really where, quick. Do you mind if I, I jump yeah. in? Yeah. I mean, no, my, go for it. my, my first thing is, uh, is this, is this to some degree why you prefer working on an individual basis? And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just assuming a bit, but is it because rather than prescribe something generically, you like to look at the individual and what the individual needs? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's for sure part of it. I mean, I can do the same thing with a group. It just would take a lot longer and a lot slower. And especially I see a lot of athletes who um, don't sometimes don't feel great or have had an injury in their recent history and they need my undivided attention. Um, those who have more tenure under my, under my wing, um, don't need as much TLC from me. Like arguably I could have, um, three to four athletes that I've been training for a few years, all training at the same time. And I'd be able to give them all unique and personalized coaching throughout that session because they're so self-sufficient you being perhaps one of them. I think if you, uh, you know, we talked about you coming and spending a few months here, those first few weeks, I'd probably want to spend just one-on-one time. Um, but that's, that's one of the reasons. The other ones is man, coaching is a relationship business. And I think that that's not emphasized enough. Um, what do you mean by a that? Study of, it's easier and better to play for a coach that you have a good relationship for with than one that you hate. It's you're much, I think you're much more likely to push yourself um, with the coach that, that you like the one that you trust. I mean, this is one of the things that I don't, I talk about in my book and is not emphasized enough or is not realized is that the power is unfortunately still all in the hands of the coaches. Athletes sign up to play with a team and they are trusting their body and their career and arguably their emotions in their mind to this coach. And I don't see enough coaches who deserve that trust because too many athletes are still getting hurt under their watch. Too many athletes are still being treated like chess pieces, like assets, like machines who aren't people who live, dream, feel, love, hate, um, want to perform well. They're, treated as X's and O's. They are treated as roster spots. That's, um, I don't, I don't see, uh, Taylor. I see my middle blocker and unfortunately that poor of a relationship is not conducive towards long-term athletic health because athletes, uh, what one would say, I think athletes are afraid to tell their coaches they don't feel good. They don't want to play. They can't play or that they're scared they're going to lose their spot because their foot hurts, because their knee hurts. I know plenty of athletes who um, might tell their coach, hey man, my, my knee really hurts. And they say, well, you either got to tough it out or I'm finding somebody else. And to the coaches, um, I, I see the needs of the coach. The coach needs to fill roster spots to keep their job. But isn't that kind of the point? Like you should, a coach has a finite amount of people on the team. He needs to preserve those athletes so that he can win, so that he can keep his job, so that he can um, put together a healthy team that can perform. 
Yeah, I mean, dude, you. I'll be honest. I'm not the best. I'm like, this is why podcasting is gonna be great for me. I'm trying my best to become an active listener and really try to listen. It's I wanted to butt in on like a thousand things because you brought up so many good points. Um, the first one I want to just talk about is like my experience overseas and the common themes that I see. And uh, one of them is exactly that is that players are afraid to speak out. And a lot of that comes from uh, <clears throat> something that I think is, is worth talking about, something that's in your book. By the way, I was lucky, lucky enough to almost have finished it. Um, absolutely fucking loved your book. I love what you're talking about. So I'm so happy to have you here. But I, I, I think a, a big issue is this disconnect between players being able to communicate with coaches. And what I the general sense I got from reading your book also was um, that a part of this is it's more, you seem to hit more so on coach if coach i don't want to like miss miss say this but like coach's responsibility and what they can now do and what they can learn from your book as a way to yes. apply it you know um that they they, they are the yeah arguably they take a lot, a lot of their responsibility if they're not willing to share autonomy and responsibility upon the athletes and they're the ones dictating all the orders and what is supposed to be done where else is the responsibility supposed to go that's right. unfortunately that that coaches demand all these things they're trying their best and it's not working. We still have so many injuries, too many injuries in this culture, and it's still growing. And then as soon as the athlete gets hurt, what did you do, Taylor? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with your knee? Why is your shoulder bothering you? What did you do wrong? Because I'm coaching you as best as I can, and I'm an amazing coach. It's all your fault. Well, I will say, hopefully, hopefully no one deals with a coach like that. It seems like a, a bit of an extreme example, but I agree with no, you. No, 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 no. You don't think so? These, these are real. I'm, these are real stories. I'm not making this up that some of the athletes that I know that I talk with, that I work with, um, on all, all talent levels mm. receive that treatment from coaches who are supposed to have their best interest at heart. I mean, <clears throat> Where do, where do I even go from here? I, I come, I, first of all, just not only completely agree, but what's been so interesting in, in our relationship is on one hand, like, this is at least how I picture it is like, on one hand, you're the guy who's just like coaches, like putting a lot of responsibility on them and like, Hey, you, I'm going to be the guy now. And maybe I'm wrong, but this is maybe a part of the reason you created the book was to be like, all right, they just, maybe they, it's not their fault. They're ignorant to the fact they just don't know any better. So I'm going to bring this up. I'm going to create something to help bring more awareness to these coaches. Exactly. That's my soft feeling. And I, I yes. feel like as a player, my experience overseas, I've been the guy as a player to be like, Hey players say how you feel. There has to be better communication in every team I've ever been on. I'm the same role. I'm not the like designated captain. I'm this like middleman because I've my whole life. And it was so funny going back home this year, like watching Christmas videos. I don't like being told what to do was very obvious from when I was a child, actually. It was really interesting to watch these old videos. And I was such a bitch, dude. It's actually super embarrassing. But it was very apparent that like, hey, Taylor, you need to smile. Like, I just, I didn't want to be told what to do. A, a fake smile or not smile and have a bad attitude. We've grown. We're a different person. But to some degree, that has always stayed with me. And then a part of that is because I just hate this, this disconnect between like, you're telling me to do something and yet you can't explain to me with good reasoning. Or the, I just think there's this like, show up. You do what you're supposed to do, go home. And when you show up again, like you do what you're supposed to do. And there's so, so many players. And I find this to be also maybe more of a like European thing where they just are, 
are like robots, especially here in Poland, where it was so interesting. And we had our coach, our coach got fired actually two weeks ago. We have a new coach now, Argentinian guy. I love him. Hopefully he'll be great. Um, but the coach we had before was very, uh, was a really nice guy, but this is my system. This is how it is. Like, this is it. And in fact, mm-hmm. like it got to the point where every practice was basically the same. And as for someone who's been playing for so long, like doing the same practice, doing hitting lines for 20 minutes and doing the basic throw the ball back and forth pepper. Like it just felt like the same shit I'd been doing forever. It's just boring and it's not challenging. Here's a big question. All right. Why do you practice? Why does anyone practice? It's a part of my job. What is it for? I mean, oh yeah. You practice because you want to get better at a skill. Okay. So was there any observable improvement in anybody's skill during those practices under that coach? That's Did your like stats a loaded question. Uh, no. Did you learn any new abilities? Well, I'm going to say something. I'm not the best example because, and this is something I've because taken. You at, have so much autonomy, I would say. Uh, definitely, but also like this is something that I, I felt luckily was was shown to early through through a guy named Milan Zarkovic who believed in a bit more of like a chaotic style. Let's say, and this is specifically talking about volleyball training that I fell in love with where it was like always new games, always as a middle, especially. Um, and you can, you were also a middle. So you feel me on this. Like anytime we get to do any drills that involve passing, like receiving the ball, passing, setting, doing anything that is not just like hitting and blocking for me, it's like my, my eyes light open. It's like, Oh, I get to be a volleyball player again because being a middle blocker is not a volleyball player. It's very specific and it's a machine. It's a machine. And arguably the hardest position. And that's because reblocking is a nightmare, but that doesn't matter. My yeah. point, my, my point is like, <laughs> I was introduced early to this idea of, uh, or learned this system early and then went overseas and was expecting to be like, oh, in my first year I played in the best league in the world. I could only imagine the coaches were also high level and everything would be really high level and got there and was just like, oh, really basic. The same system of like some basic warm up, hitting lines six on six with like high ball, whatever. And so early I realized, oh, if I want to improve, I have to create my own environment that challenges me within that environment. So here's the example is the example is like serving, right? Like a basic serve and receive. And something I started doing early on was, okay, can I serve from the left side? I serve from the right side. Can I serve at like a slightly different angle? Can I serve at, and again, this is after repetition on repetition of understanding the concept. And the concept to me is your ability to step close and contact the ball in an, in an optimal area for you to control it more or less. Mm-hmm. And really it's mm-hmm. just as simple as a step close. So it's like, well, if I understand the concept and the concept is the step close, and that's what I'm focusing on. Now we can add variability, let's say, and apply it to creating some novelty, trying some different serves, toss with the left hand, like right. mixing it up a bit. Um, and I don't mean for now kids or anyone listening to this be like, Oh, cool. I'm just going to go start like throwing balls around and like being wild. I think for me, at least it was figuring out a time when to do it. And then as I mastered the technique, understanding that, okay, now I I've, I've given the confidence feedback to myself that I can start to play around in my environment. Right. So this is the power of you having autonomy, you taking control of your, your practice, your career, your skills. So this is, uh, one of the reasons why I empower athletes to, to do that is, um, you took ownership of your career. I would argue that a lot of practices around the world and all sports look extremely similar week to week to week. 
And the thing that is supposed to happen at practice is an improvement of skills and there's an absence of that outcome. So there's this um, really cliche aphorism of trust the process. And that is a, um, with a really bad process, that is a terrible mantra. The process needs to be work, needs to work. It needs to earn that trust. And people just doing hitting lines against no blockers for 20 minutes of practice, 30 minutes of practice, and having these um, tons of different scenarios that don't actually help athletes get better, that process deserves to be questioned. And if athletes are not allowed to question that process, then we have a lot of what we see today, which is endless practice factories where athletes rotate through assembly line drills, not getting better at their sport, just expending calories. Uh, okay. So here's, here's my thought now is let's live in a dream world for a second. Actually, I take that back. Let's live in the future after everyone reads your book and we all start applying your concepts to, mm -hmm. to volleyball mm -hmm. training. What is the perfect practice environment look like? And, so and we don't, it doesn't even that, need to be like perfect yeah. environment, but like in terms of like the communication between coach and player, the actual coach's responsibility in creating the environment, like what is that, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? What does that environment look like? Right. Okay. So first we need to understand sports and how skills come about. My definition of skill is power of discernment. And the smaller nuances that you can discern, typically the more skill you have. Tom Brady needs a six inch gap between defenders that he knows is going to happen in the future to throw the ball. A high school quarterback needs to see a wide receiver open with like five yards around him to make a good pass. Um, a volleyball player needs to be able uh, to libero needs to be able to discern the smallest different change in the attacker's wrist to predict where the ball will go which comes to my next point um, mm -hmm. that I go about very in depth in my book is that our brains are prediction making organs. Um, you learning how to hit a ball or hit a serve is based on your abilities to predict the future. Those predictions are a probability of past experiences that you need enough experiences of tossing a ball into slightly different positions to predict the trajectory of a ball to hit a serve. You need to receive enough different serves to predict the path of a ball, to predict where um, how the spin on a, a topspin serve is going to curve down into your right. You need to be able to see enough setters as a read blocker to predict where the ball is going to go. So the more you can discern small details to create predictions, the more skills can increase. The problem is we see practice after practice where there's no predictive ability is necessary. Athletes will be um, tossed. A setter will be tossed a ball and have to set it repeatedly into a circle across the court. And what is missing is that decision, that choice to set across the court to the outside is based on and, and a lot of environmental factors. It depends on the emotions um, that the setter currently has. It depends on the relationship between the setter and the hitter. It depends on the context of the game. If the setter is really good, they can glance at the blockers to see where they are before they make the set and then make that choice. The trajectory of the ball 
is not just this fixed static thing. It is dynamic. It is um, different from play to play to play. And so when we have these drills that allow us to bank hundreds and hundreds of repetitions that are supposed to look identical, it's actually not conducive towards skill because this is not about skill. It's just caloric expenditure. Skill is discernment and prediction based on the context of the things around us in a play. The NFL combine and the pro days are a perfect example where quarterbacks who are not facing any pass rushers are throwing a pass to a wide receiver who's just running an open area and coaches and scouts all over the world are watching this happen. Like, Oh, I can assess his talent. He's a hard worker. He look at the cannon on that guy. And we see year after year after year of people paid millions of dollars based on these, these bullshit tests uh, and bad perceptions because they don't understand skill. Um, Tom Brady, again, is a perfect example, terrible, Combine, terrible pro day, best quarterback of all time because of his ability to predict and perceive opponents and the situations around him. He can predict what passes will be complete more than incomplete. And these are the scenarios that need to happen in practice. There needs to be game-like competitive type scenarios that actually look, smell, and feel like the game um, that, that actually look or seem like volleyball. You can get creative within it, but there needs to be uh, situations that demand choices. Did all that kind of make sense? I just went, I just, just a little bit of pee just came out. Got me all excited. I mean, yeah, dude. And and this is like, God, it gets me, it gets me so riled up because, you know, I'm in a position currently where I just see year after year, the same conversation in the locker room talking about how the coach sucks and the practice is boring and guys just showing up like in quotes, just doing their job. I mean, I had this really bad in France last year, granted we won the championship. It was an epic year personally. And also as a team. Um, but <laughs> to that point, it's like, we're getting any better in practice. That was actually one of the worst experiences where we were literally doing the same warm up, hitting lines for like 15 minutes of hitting lines with no block, nothing. And then 15 minutes of hitting lines with a serve. Okay, so let me, let me interrupt you here real quick because this is an important point. Why do we see the exact same warm-up across like almost all sports? It's it's hilarious that you I can identify what sport someone plays just by their warm-up, whether they're a soccer, uh, soccer player, basketball player, volleyball player, track athlete. They all have these little cultural nuances. Like right before a uh, 100-meter sprinter, um, is about to take off. They all do the same thing. They jump up and down and they shake their legs out. They might get a quick stretch of their hamstring. A lot of them will slap their legs. It's like, what is that all for? Does it actually do anything? And why? It, it's really curious to me that everyone's doing the exact same thing. Before a volleyball game, I mean, I watched um, one of the final fours with a friend and researcher who's now with Orlando Magic, um, the final four of volleyball. And why are all the athletes on both sides of the court going through the exact same warm up? both two different teams with 20 different individuals on the team that all have different skill needs and different body needs. And yet they're all going through the same warm-up, the same drills. I'm going to, I'm going to answer practice. I'm going to answer it as if I'm yeah. the, like the conventional response. And that would just be that you're priming your body in a way that's relative to the needs of volleyball. Generally. That's sure. my response. Cool. Fine with that. Um, but there can be more creative creativity or understanding. Okay. Um, final four is a, an example where it's like, yeah, just get your body kind of ready to play. But um, can you prime 
the brain to predict better by having a little bit more unpredictability in that warm-up. To have people to make choices instead of have to just see the same down ball set uh, hit from the assistant coach on the sideline like over and over and over again, where the assistant coach is already be trying to hit it in a gettable area for the defender where the opponent is trying to hit it. Where and they apologize when they accidentally hit it like a little to the left or a little to the right. Right. Exactly. And (laughs) and if anything, they should just be saying you're, you're welcome. You're welcome for that rep. Um, Sorry. You didn't get it. And dude, this is, again, this is like, it goes back to what I learned from uh, Holland's Arkbish, dude. He's just the godfather of volleyball. I love this guy so much. And what he did a lot, for example, he, you would never see him introduce a ball. For example, if the drill was like, let's say six on six and one team was supposed to get a, in quotes, free ball, he would always toss it to someone randomly and they had to step close and put the ball over as a free ball, but like try to score. Everything was, he added competition to a lot of that. And it's such a, it's such a small thing that made such a huge difference for many reasons. The first, so So easy easy to do. And the reason it was so great and powerful is you got to the point where you knew he was unpredictable. And A, that made you more responsive, more ready. You were constantly like, he could be looking this way, just pop a ball to the team who wasn't supposed to get it. And now whoever's closest, you have to make this decision all of a sudden between like, A, who's hitting this ball? B, height, trajectory. Like there's so many things. And now I, I have to give the free ball. And like, that's adding little bits of, of um, what's the word I'm looking for? You're, you're adding a little bit of that, and I say chaos, but I think you described it better. Um, what's it, what's the word I'm looking for? Mixing it up? Unpredictability. Unpredictability, much better. Uh, you're adding in that unpredictability in a way that still transfers to skill, one of the most important skills in volleyball, the ability to step close and be where you need to be in the air. And yeah. I, I just think like that, that uh, translates into that example is just a tiny example that made a huge difference and that scales yeah. in so many different ways. All right. So I want to still come back to like the movement warm up, but I want to address unpredictability here. When I watched the Olympics and the VNL last year, I see volleyball progressing in other countries more than America, where on a free ball, Brazil doesn't use all three touches. Whoever receives the free ball sets the hitter. That is a much more unpredictable scenario. Why do you need all three touches? Beach volleyball doesn't use all three touches all the time, and it usually works out really well. Um, and, and France as well, Angapef, and, and these more untraditional players are starting to score a lot of points or become superstars because they have um, doing things that are just a little bit more unpredictable. I think there was also a moment in the VNL where Brazil had five attackers going on a play and the middle was in the back row, which of course you and I love when the middle is a back row option. Absolutely. Why don't we see more of that in America? We just see 415, 415, 415. Like, oh, that's that's the way you're supposed to play volleyball. Who cares how you're supposed to play volleyball? How do you play volleyball to score points? And if skill skill is uh, how well you predict something, the better opponent, the people who win are people who are a little bit more unpredictable. And I think, first of all, I do want to say, I actually think that that message is slowly, whether originally for the right reasons or not, but people, I can imagine kids saw Ingepeth and was like, oh, this guy's so sick. He just clearly doesn't give a shit. He's like doing all these different things. He's actually scoring at a really high rate. 
when he's doing a lot of these unpredictable things. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've actually seen like beta Bay is a great example. They just posted something of one of their outsides, like setter passes the ball outside in the back row goes to attack and sets the outside. And I look at that and it, it makes me so happy for a lot of reasons. And one of them is exactly what you're touching on. Like, and this relates back to coaches is as a coach, you have to allow for some of that creativity from those players, you know, because what we see a lot is I'll give, well, for example, I was in the national team three years ago. Uh, and even during practice, I would, I was do, a, I would do a lot of ball comes over and I'm at the front row as a middle and I pretend to hit and set to the outside. Now, originally I started doing that because I started noticing that that a lot of times the setter's already at the net. So the setter's jumping with me. So not only does it look cool, and let's be honest, stroking the ego feels good sometimes, and it does. Mm -hmm. And not only did it look cool, it was also tactically like such a good decision. I know I can get this, their setter, their pin blocker to jump with me. And now I can set a ball with enough height for my outside, even if he's not prepared for it. And I always prepare my outsides for it because you know daddy's trying to do something cool. He's trying to get that highlight reel. Um, but, you know, even, even if he's not prepared, I put it with enough time for him to react to it. Um, and mm -hmm. man, I'll never forget, like, it's great. Like when it works, it was like, okay, like that's cool. And I'll never forget one time it didn't work. And John was like, dude, stop doing that. And mm -hmm. now we're, we're treading into interesting water here because I have a great relationship with John. I'm a part of the national team right now, but I do think it's still worth talking about. Like, and that kind of shut me down. And in fact, that summer I ended up doing it in a game and it was so, I knew that if it failed. I was going to get reamed, um, mm -hmm. but you know, your boys out there rolling dice. So I went for it and Jake Langlois scored and it ended up being really cool against Korea. Um, but you know, in trying to push that envelope again, and this is where I totally agree with you that so much of that is the coach's culture that they've created and allowing players some autonomy and also to, to practice some of those things, you know, like what <clears throat> I think what coaches see an issue with is they see it like, Oh, they see all these high level athletes doing these fancy things and, uh, they're just not ready for it, you know, or they need to, they need to understand the basics first. Like, how would you respond well, to that? What they need to understand is that skill is created through errors. Errors are created. It's, it's the biggest irony in the world that coaches want athletes to get better, but then chastise them for mistakes. If they're not allowed to make mistakes, how are they ever going to get better? And if they're only allowed to mistakes, make mistakes in practice and don't make mistakes in games, it's not going to show up. They need to have that freedom. They need to be empowered by their coaches to say, you know what, when you make that set and when it works out, it's going to be a great asset. Um, understand the context of a game. Like this is a one point difference. Like maybe we go for a safer, safer choice next time. So that would be the choice to improve upon with you trying to, you know, jump set a back set to the outside. Um, but, you know, I, to be honest, I think it, it touches on a, a very interesting psychological aspect of coaching is that if athletes make, if their athletes make mistakes, they're a bad coach. And that's not, exactly true you're a bad coach if you're a bad coach athletes make mistakes when they need to learn they're trying to do something that they've never done before so of course it's going to come with mistakes mistakes need to be encouraged not punished the research on punishment is is very clear that in general biological organisms avoid what makes what gets them punished and if they made a choice to make a unique play or, or try to advance their skills and it resulted in an error and then they get punished verbally or physically, emotionally, whatever, they are much less likely to try that again. 
And if they don't try that again, they're never going to get better at it. They're going to keep with what they know, the, the safe thing. They're going to just get the serve in. And they're so, not going to get better. So here's here's my question. As you were saying that, I was thinking, uh, what's the best way to judge a coach? Let's, let's take, for example, uh, the president of a club, right? Like the president of our club. He doesn't yeah. know shit. He doesn't know shit about volleyball. Okay. But he's basing it on, well, are we winning or are we losing? And maybe some feedback in between there if the players talk to him or whatever, but more or less, like wh- what does he have to judge it on? And then the question becomes like, in your opinion, like what's the solution other than educating coaches take like a the perspective of someone in the hierarchical system of, of professional sports. Like what, what's the solution? First is going to be the health of the players. Like if we look at F1, an example, it's, it's easy to draw a metaphor here to cars because Oh, it's just a vehicle. It's dispassionate. If um, I'm just going to pick on the the team that finished last this year, it's an American company named Haas. Um, they have an F1 team. If they is that company in av- Haas Avocados? No, no, no. Okay. It's a manu- uh, like machining, manufacturing, metal gotcha. metalwork company. Kind Not of necessary. I apologize. If they make it to every race, but their car breaks down every single time doesn't matter how good the drivers are. It doesn't matter how good the team principal is at at organizing the team. They didn't have a car that was able to compete. So number one, my first judgment of a coach, club director, anything is their health. And this is, uh, I use coach interchangeably between uh, movement coach, strength and condition coach, and say volleyball coach. First, you need, you know, availability. Athletes, their time, their energy, their body is a very precious and finite. They are precious and finite resources. Um, second would be well, I already love you you saying that the first one is about treating your athlete like you know precious precious finite resource. Love that. Yeah, of course. They're people. I guess, I guess what working so hard to try to be better. And this is why I love you is I think you have so much of the athlete in mind and almost that to some degree, it's almost like the parent and the child. And that's a terrible analogy, but I mean that in the sense that like have some responsibility as a parent though, like athletes end up spending more time with their, like especially professional athletes, they spend more time with their coaches and their teammates than they do their families. It's a different kind of family. And the coach metaphorically is the parent. And, um, and I just, just, just to make sure that we're on the same area for question and answer here, I, I guess originally I was wondering, like, if you're a president, like, how do you judge your coach? And I guess to, to that response, you, you're telling me that you, you judge that based on like, well, how healthy are your athletes? That's the first part thing. of it. The second correct. thing is probably um, the ability to adapt to, to change or adapt in a positive way. That if there's a streak of losses that the coach does not just keep doing the same thing that they realize, Oh, what we're doing in practice is not resulting in wins. I'm the one who's creating the practice design. Oh, what I'm doing is not resulting in athletes advancement of skill. I should probably change how we, I design practice. So athletes, so we can win, so we can get better, so I can keep getting paid as a coach, and I can keep putting food on the table. Can I can I bring That's up a very, no sorry yep. 
No, I just, I just want to bring up an example. And the example for me is, and I want to hear you touch on this a little bit is like, let's use a classic example. Something I see as a professional athlete out here all the time, which is uh, maybe it's a Monday practice or a Tuesday practice. And it's just clear, low energy for whatever reason Mm -hmm. to me, the Mm -hmm. reason in my mind is always because we're doing the same shit every day, but let's Mm -hmm. just say it's, it's just a low energy day. What's mm-hmm. the, what's the solution I have some personally, but I want to know, I'm just curious from you, like what's the coach's solution when it's just like, everyone seems tired or energetic because right now, what it seems to be from most teams I've played on is the coach just yells and tries to like, you're as like tired, a you're sluggish. work harder. Yeah. So you got to understand a little bit of physiology. Um, why are they all tired? That is a big fluke or sorry, not a big fluke. That is, it's not a coincidence. If the entire team is tired, it's probably because they've spent too much energy. We go back to a race car. Hey, boss, we don't have enough fuel to finish the race. All right. Well, can't get more fuel for the body immediately. It's got to happen with some sleep. Guess we're not racing today. You get the day off. There's such a fear about rest. like. Mm. What I would rather happen is, well, we're not going to have a very effective practice today if everybody's tired. The adaptability of the body and mind is in a much decreased state. So while the egos of athletes and coaches may be satisfied that, oh, well, gosh darn it, we worked so hard today, even though we were tired, we didn't give up, we, we didn't take a rest day, therefore I am safe. We are safe because we... We worked hard in the face of adversity. Uh, well, I guess it's not adversity, and just in the face of fatigue. I think that's a very I- ignorant and fearful approach. Everybody's tired. We're not going to have a good practice. All right, go home. Sleep. Daddy, you're 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 lighting me up right now. I got so many things I wanted to say. Um, the the coaches need to understand physiology. Fatigue and mood is uh, uh, one of the first symptoms of like, yeah, overtraining. The body doesn't have enough energy to to practice or to train. Okay, well, that energy is not just going to show up because you yell at them. It's going to show up when they sleep and eat well. Exactly. And and dude, th- it's so interesting because this is, I'm a scientist, just in case you didn't know. I may be paid as a player, but I also- He's am, wearing a lab coat right now. I'm basically wearing a lab coat. Hear that. Um, I'm wearing an internal lab coat because I do feel like that's how I look at the game right now. And something that I've picked up on uh, is it's amazing where, you know, we'll start we'll start the day with like bagaroni, which is basically like volley tennis. Right. And like or have some game where guys are like talking a little shit and like having fun. And like that's a game of like just reacting. It's always a little different. And like that that game, everyone lights up for. Another one is the short court, right? You see guys come 15. I'm one of them who comes like 20 minutes early just to play short court. Cause it's just so fun. I love that game. Two on two, two touch, three touch, yeah. whatever. It's just so fun. And so the, in fact, it's like, we're playing that. Then coach is like, all right, we got to start playing. And all of our hearts just go, oh, fuck. Now we got to do our like touch your toes and D roms and whatever. And then it's like, throw the ball back. Why and do forth. you have to do that? If you've already been playing volleyball for 20 minutes, this is that's another minutes. great thing we could go down. But my, my point, my point is like, I, I feel like one great solution for coaches could be to 
simply add in games. And a part of that is I'm just taking the player's perspective where it's so clear to me that when you play a game that everyone enjoys, people light up when you're like, when we're like, we're playing Bagaroni, it's like, awesome. Young versus experience. Like we're talking shit. It's just like so much fun. And then it ends. It's like, it ends. And the coach is almost like, okay, I gave you your game. Uh, now hitting lines. And yeah. now, now we're going to the boring shit and everyone like it's, it's amazing to me that like if it would have started out boring and maybe guys are tired, it's like clear, low energy through the whole day. But it's amazing to see like, oh, at the beginning of practice, we had so much energy and now we're doing all the shit we've been doing for the past 10, 15 years. And yeah. it just flatlines. Well, it's because unpredictability is fun. You get a lot of fun neurochemicals when you're like, oh, I don't know if we're going to win. This is a fun game. We haven't done this before. Blah, blah, blah. That's really good for learning unpredictability as we know is very good for skills skill development like it's it's a big question that you know i i want to bring up the other side of it and here's the other side of it is milan for example milan zarkovich came into the usa gym a few years ago mm -hmm. and you talk to a guy like matt anderson thomas jeschke micah christians and mm -hmm. some of these like big name great players and really good people um how to some degree it's like and Milan more or less called it like masturbation almost just kind of like, oh yeah, you need to throw the ball back and forth and like warm up and touch your toes. And like, he didn't, he is not that style, which is partly why I love the guy. Um, but it's amazing to me how in my, uh, maybe like ignorantly, I'm like, why every athlete should be thinking like, like me, right? Does don't all of you want to have fun and do things that are novel and learn things. And, and, and it's amazing on the other side of the spectrum, how much guys have now sunk into this system of feeling mm -hmm. like this is the routine I need, let's call it to get into this space. And now I'm not talking about games because I do actually feel like the ability to like trigger a routine to start getting in the headspace to play a match has some importance, at least for me, it does. Mm -hmm. Um, but especially every day we're talking about, we're talking about practice, you know, when are you talking oh. about the game? And so I, I do think like, I found it so interesting because I just assumed everyone would love Milan because I loved him so much. And, and there was just guys a lot of people uncomfortable, so uncomfortable. And I couldn't believe how much guys were like, actually, I'm going to, yeah. And they were just like, go I'm going to go, I'm going to go over here and, and finish, do the warm up over here. And guys like kind of split off. And some guys were like, maybe this is stuff like kids should be doing, you know, not professional players. Like we should be doing the way that like some of them, I was, what I'm trying to say is I was surprised at how many guys liked doing the same shit every day, the same traditional style, uh, mm -hmm. the scroll, as you've called it, that's passed down for coaches. It's like the same as players to some degree, right? It goes with mm -hmm. modality tools for recovery. It goes with, it's just this mindless, like, Oh, what are they doing? Okay. We'll just do that. Oh, that's worked. Matt Anderson. Like what's that guy doing? And he's a, he's an interesting case. We don't need to dive too far into him. I'm going to try to interview him at some point because he's fascinating. He's been healthy for so long. Um, but he's a guy who like just got his way. He wants to be on his path and do his thing. Right. So, I mean, it brings up the, a really good point where um, part of what I encourage people to explore is know what works for you. And then also as a little bit of backup, know what generally works for human beings. Understand a little bit of, of research or find somebody who understands um, what has been researched to work and what's not worked um, so that you can make informed decisions. I don't we tell my athletes, Go ahead. I, I never like dictate what I what my athletes do. I always just give them an invitation. I will tell them, hey, this is what I know. 
Um, this is what I think would be a useful choice if I were you. I support you no matter what you choose. I just want to give you information to make the best choice for your career. And if you feel you need something, okay, um, we can do it, but I want you to prove that you need it. So I'm, I'm trying I try my best, especially as I've gotten older to take the mindset of a coach. Right. And so my mm -hmm. question to you would be, you're the coach and <clears throat> half of your players are all in on what you're describing. Right. And let's call it a new, a new way of looking at training as compared to the traditional style of training. And let's say half mm -hmm. your team likes, they need the traditional, they think they need it. They love it. The other are, they love the novelty. They love these new games. They love all this stuff. How do you as a coach find something that works for everyone? Because the problem that I see a lot of coaches here, here, talk about is, is, oh, well, everyone has specific needs. Sure. But like on the coach, we got to have a system. We have to, we have to have everyone cooperating. Like, how does that work for you? Here's a real complicated answer. Love it. Talk to the athletes. Have them give input. Ask them why they feel they need to do one thing or another. Do homework as a coach. Understand if these things work or not. Do Not only read research, but just see what happens in your own practice. People are taking stats like, does does these drills that you guys are doing, whether it's highly variable or highly monotonous, actually result in people's stats improving? Does the athlete feel that they are improving or do they feel like they're just repeating themselves week in, week out? What? This can be a much more collaborative process than it needs to be. And I agree. In fact, uh, and shouldn't, shouldn't the athletes have an awareness of their skill, of their health, of their body? Shouldn't they know whether or not they're getting better? I, here, here's a perfect example. I remember I was trying to hit, uh, I would study David Lee and Ryan Millar as middles when I was in college. And I saw them hit this sharp angle on a three ball that I never thought I could hit. And I tried so long and I knew my progress was absent. It's like, I just was not getting better at this. And when I'm learning, when, when someone is learning something new that they've never done before, repetitive monotonous things can be quite useful. But once I own it, it's, it's not really that useful anymore. Mm. Um, so then one day I, um, one day I, uh, uh, sorry, one of my athletes is calling me real quick. Um, let me answer it. Story. Answer it, dude. Put him on live. Let's no, go. Let's I'm, not, I'm not, I'm not answering it. Let me just see if I screwed up my scheduling or something. Um, oh shit. Okay. Well, in the meantime, I think what you're talking about is sharp to four, like right in the T. Okay. Hold on a, a second. Um, let me respond to her. My boy's busy, dude. Keeps it busy. He keeps it moving. And somehow he's been training all these people and somehow he made time to write a book. That's pretty exciting. And not quite honestly, I don't really don't even know how you do it. I'm trying to even just trying to like get this podcast going and get things going. It's been a, like a nightmare. I just feel like, wow, now how do you have time for personal relationships and all that stuff, but I commend you. Okay. Um, you got to head out soon or are you, uh, I do. I do. Let me finish this story. Um, <laughs> 
so then I, basically I got the shot down this really sharp angle to zone three. And I was like elated. I was like, ah, finally I got better at this thing. Zone three, what um, do you mean? Straight down? <laughs> that was, that was sorry. Not zone, uh, one, two, sorry. Four zone four. That T baby. I knew what you were talking about. I'm there. Yeah. Um, so then once I got it in a very like sterile scenario, um, I, uh, was able to do it in more chaotic and more unpredictable scenarios and I owned it and could insert it into a, a scrimmage. Um, so I mean, that, that whole process of just being like, ah, I'm aware that I got better at something in practice. And shouldn't that be the goal of practice? Shouldn't that be the conversations happening between coaches and athletes with athletes within themselves? So my question for you really quick is like, what do you consider owning something? Because if you look at something, for example, uh, like serving the ball, right? We still see guys at the highest level missing it pretty decently. I mean, I'm being super general, but we'll still see guys who should be, who should have absolutely at this point, let's say owned their jump serve, jump serve still show up and miss. I don't know, like yeah. still serve under 70% or something, you know? Yeah. Skills are hard. Sports are hard. Ownership is not um, complete, you know, hundred percent mastery. Like you have hundred percent mastery of using a fork. like. I don't remember the last time I missed my mouth with a fork, but truly when it comes, <laughs> when it comes to serving, like, yeah, it's hard. Ownership is going to change from day to day. It's based on a lot of different things. I would say the ability and confidence within themselves to go for it on game point, like sure ownership, it might not work out, but that, that perceived ability to go for it. Yep. So just to like, just to try to finalize a little bit of this. And to me, it's under the, this, this idea of structure versus chaos. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what I'm learning from you right now is, is more or less set aside time to, to own something, right. Especially for younger mm -hmm. athletes. It's like, it doesn't just need to be that everything is chaotic all the time now. And you're not actually learning anything or feel like you're learning anything. So it's this combination of having, oh, you're gonna hate that. like having some structure to some degree, you know, yeah. of trying to own a yeah. skill. And then as you continue to own that skill, as the skill gets more and more owned, uh, throwing in some, some variables to add some chaos. Yeah. yeah. So I do in hitting lines, I try to hit that T across the court on that three ball. And then my intention is, okay, I want to have this show up in the scrimmage. And at first I'm just going to try to hit there automatically. I'm not even going to look to see if it's open. I'm just going to go there with the intention is I'm going to hit that, that sharp angle. And then as I am able to do that with blockers in front of me, with a, a, a pass set and a serve happening in the context of a game, I'm getting a little bit more ownership. And then eventually I should be able to be in the air, see the ball coming towards me and see the court in front of me and be like, ah, oh, that spot's open. I'm going to choose that. Or I'm going to go cross body and hit zone two of the opposite to T. Mm. Man, uh, it's amazing. I, I wrote down like so many different like topics and things to hit on and look at us, dude, just flowing like some water down a stream. I felt like we hit on yeah. so many good things. Like there was so much gold in this. I know you probably got to run now, so I'm gonna let mm -hmm. you go. We'll probably end up doing like a part two through fucking a thousand series because I just yes. love talking to you. Like talking to you lights me up as you can tell in my voice right now. And probably my red and rosy cheeks is like, I just love getting to discuss these things with you, you know? Um, so we didn't really get, 
I mean, even though I think we touched on a lot of things in your book, I'd love to maybe next time dive even deeper. Hopefully it'll yeah. be out. Do you want to, do you want to do a little PR here and talk? Yeah. About- so, um, it will be out probably within a few months. It is in the last few stages. Um, you can sign up to be notified when it's available for pre-sale or if it's released at theevolvedcoach.com. That's the title of the book, The Evolved Coach. Um, if you're interested in learning this stuff as a coach, there will be a course and you can sign up for that course um, later on. Right now, the course is only an invite-only uh, situation to the coaches who I've been talking to for the last few years. But if you're interested in learning more about the, the movement stuff, which we didn't really even get into, um, the movement course will be offered first. And then I'll be talking about skills uh, and at a later date. Where did this apply to athletes as well? I know, let, let me just talk personally as an yeah. athlete. Now I'm someone on maybe the opposite end of the spectrum who cares so much about this stuff, find it so fascinating and love learning uh, so many things from your book. I found it uh, really interesting, an interesting read as an athlete to continue to open that door of awareness. And to, you know, my hope is that definitely coaches read this. And I love that you're addressing this to coaches because I think so many times these types of things are addressed to the athlete kind of like, well, the coach knows now it's your job as the athlete to do all these things. And I think, um, this book does a great job of just talking about both, you know, talking about both and, and you hit the, the attitude and the tone to me. First of all, like getting to show like a little bit of your goofiness in the book made me so happy that you just like, if, if this is not like a, a, a school textbook, you know, like most, uh, I don't know, training books or, mo- you know, yeah. like it, it's, this is not a book that you're, well, hopefully your teacher will give it's it to fun. you. Not a book that I would have read. It's fun. It's yeah. great. Um, there were pictures, you know, you. your boy needs some pictures in there. So it was cool to see some yeah. photos in there. Um, dude, I love you. Uh, we will definitely do this again. Thank you so much for doing this with me. And, uh, of course, yeah, I hope you guys enjoy it. If anybody wants to follow, uh, along what I do more of a training side, uh, that can be seen on Instagram at apiros.team. And I'm sure you'll put links into that stuff. I shall dude. Thank you so much. I love you, man. All right. I gotta go. See ya. See ya.